0: Well, as a kid in school, uh, I always enjoyed studying history. Maybe that's a little strange, but I I still enjoy studying history today. Uh, But I always enjoyed studying it as as a kid, and it was ancient history that fascinated me most. I, I loved reading about the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans, learning about their attempts at world conquest, about the intriguing individuals that were involved in the various battles, and about their mythology. There are some interesting characters in ancient mythology. And as a kid, it was especially the monsters, the mythological monsters that fascinated me most. You had the the tragic, frightening Medusa. Remember her with her snakes for hair and her her gaze that would turn men to stone. You had the Hydra, the multi-headed sea serpent, who once you cut off one of his heads, what would happen? Two more would sprout in its place. And then there was Seberus, that three-headed hound of Hades, and what kid wouldn't be both frightened and fascinated by a ravenous three-headed monster dog, right? <laughs> but it was that image, that three-headed hound of Hades that popped into my mind this week as I was studying through our text for this morning. And it wasn't just some random, crazy, unconnected thought rock- rocketing through my head, although that, that does happen from time to time. No, instead, that image of that three-headed beast came to mind because of what I was seeing in our text for this morning You see, in our text for this morning, we encounter another three-headed hound of Hades, another beast with multiple ways to attack its victims and keep them in its grip. And the three-headed monster, which we are going to begin looking at this morning, is the three-headed beast of religion. The three-headed beast of religion. Now, as I say that, and before I show you the the three heads of this monster, uh, let me just clarify what I mean by that word religion. In our culture, especially The last decade, decade plus, that word religion is often used in a negative sense. Even in the church, people often use that word religion to describe that which is in opposition to the gospel, that which is empty of faith, empty of substance, empty of authenticity. Uh, People use that word religion to speak of things like the hypocritical Pharisees. They were the religious. They were the ones whose approach to God was devoid of any real substance, any genuineness, any humility. But here's the thing. That's not always the way this word religion is used in the scriptures. It isn't always used to describe that which is negative. Over in the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. This is James 1, 26. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And if we just had that one verse, we would feel like, here's James just calling out the hypocrites. You know, he too is using that word religion in a negative sense, speaking about the hypocrites. But then the very next verse, James says this, verse 27, he writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there, James uses this word religion to describe that which is pure and undefiled, that which is good and right and pleasing to the Lord. And James does that because that word religion simply means an expression of devotion to God. That's what the word means, an expression of devotion to God. So religion can be a good thing. It can be that which is pleasing to God because we are expressing devotion to him in a way that is right, in a way that is according to the truth, the way that is according to what he has prescribed in his word, in a way that pleases him. So religion can be a good thing, but it can also be something else. It can also be something else, and that's what we're going to see in our text for this morning. We're going to see the negative side of religion, that which is not according to the truth, that which is not pleasing to God. So take your Bibles, hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and turn over to the book of Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. And if, if you don't have a Bible here this morning, I want you to be able to follow along as we work through the text, so just slip your hand up and we will have Buck, the man on the spot, with the Bible for you. So everybody got a Bible? All right. So Colossians chapter 2, and look at the very last verse there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Verse 23 of Colossians 2. Paul says these, and he's referring to rules that he's just described there in verse 21. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here, just like James, Paul uses that word religion. But do you notice he's added a modifier? You notice the modifier there? Yeah, self-made. In the original language, Paul has added a prefix to the Greek word for religion. So if you have an ESV, it translates this compound word. And and some scholars believe that Paul's coined this term. He made it up himself. He added this prefix to the front of the word, the Greek word for religion. But the ESV has translated that compound word as self-made religion. If you have a New King James Version, you see that it brings it across as self-imposed religion. And the NIV renders it as self-imposed worship. And all those translations are bringing across the same idea. Here Paul is talking about an expression of devotion to God, which is not according to God's truth. It's not according to God's revelation. Instead, it is an expression of devotion that is governed by human wisdom and man-made ideas. It is approaching God in the way that we deem best not in the way that God has prescribed. It is a self-made religion. And that was the religion that was being pushed by false teachers in the church in Colossae. That was what was being pushed by false teachers there in the church of Colossae. That's the three-headed monster that Paul will expose in the text we're going to work through this morning. The three-headed beast that is self-made religion. Self-made religion. But before we look at Paul, go after this monster of self-made religion... Let me just remind you for a moment of how he's been approaching the Colossians thus far in this letter. As we've been working through this letter, we've seen Paul primarily focus on both the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Christian who is in Christ. Sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Christian who is in Christ. As we've seen, this letter gives a great amount of attention to the sufficiency of Christ. Paul's unpacking for his readers the fullness of Christ. Remember back there in chapter 1, we found this rich glorious hymn showing us Christ's supremacy look back chapter 1 verse 15 they're starting in verse 15 Paul tells us that he speaking of Christ he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of a really over all creation Paul explains in verse 16 that by him by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities so what does that all include Yeah, everything. All things were created through him, and then what does it say? For him. And he is before all things, both in time and rank, and in him all things hold together. Paul then goes on to spell out there in in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Paul is teaching these Colossians about the fullness of Christ, that he is the Lord, that he is the preeminent one over both original creation and new or redeemed creation. And then in chapter 2, Paul again calls his readers to see Christ's efficiency. He explains, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. And again, I just kind of want to bring you up to speed with Paul's argument here. He explains in verse 9 in in chapter 2 that in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So that means what? There's nothing lacking in Jesus Christ. All of the the godness of God is found where? In Christ. In the person of Jesus. So in the person of Jesus, there is no lack. So that means that Jesus is, is a little helpful for what we need. No, he's more than sufficient. He's more than sufficient for everything that we need. And as Paul is unpacking that truth for his readers, the sufficiency of Christ, the fullness of Christ, he also wants them to understand how sufficient they are through faith in Christ. How sufficient they are through faith in that sufficient one. He wants them to see that they are full in Christ. So back in chapter one, he explains, this is the whole purpose of his ministry. He says, look at verse 28. He says, this is the purpose of our ministry. Him, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone how? What does it say? Yeah, perfect, mature, complete in Christ. You see, Paul's goal in proclaiming Christ was that believers, that Christians would be mature in Christ, that they would see themselves rightly, that they would understand who they are in Christ, that they would understand that they are complete, that they lack nothing in Christ. Paul wants the Colossians to know that, and he wants them then to live out of that truth. So he admonishes them. Look down there in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, as you've embraced the sufficient one, do what? Go add some other stuff, because you need other stuff. And what does he say? So walk in him. So keep living out of this faith in Christ, because Christ is sufficient. Keep embracing him alone. And in verse 10, he reminds them, this is why you should do this. He says, verse 10, and you have been, what, filled, filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So in Christ, there is no lack. If you are in Christ, you lack nothing that you need. God has given you everything in Christ. And Paul wants the Colossians to understand that, that in Christ, they lack nothing. And that was a message that was desperately needed in that church because they were a church that was, that was under attack from those who were teaching, just the opposite, They were teaching that Jesus isn't enough. That church was under attack from those who were trying to peddle, as I've been calling it, supplements to the Colossians Christianity. Supplements to their faith in Christ. that That you need a little extra. You need this, you need this, you need this, because Christ isn't enough. But these supplements that these false teachers were peddling, it wasn't of God. And as Paul's been making the point, it wasn't needed. Those supplements weren't needed. The supplement, as Paul explains in verse 8 of chapter 2, the supplements that were being peddled were simply empty, deceiving, humanistic, worldly philosophy. That's what it was. And it it was man-made, it was self-imposed, it was self-made religion. And, and the these false teachers that were coming into the church, they were trying to take the Colossians captive by those things. Captive by those things. And so Paul warns the Colossians in verse eight that this self-made religion. This this empty, deceiving philosophy was trying to get a hold of them, take them captive, and pull them away from devotion to Jesus Christ. Pull them away from devotion to Christ. So after now having shown the Colossians how sufficient Christ is, how sufficient they are in him, and then then warning them, Paul turns his attention to further describe this false teaching that was invading the church. And and he's going to show the Colossians here and what we're going to work through beginning this morning. He's going to show the Colossians how empty, how empty, how, how fleshly, and how futile this teaching, this self-made religion that these false teachers were trying to push, how empty, how fleshly, and futile it really is. And the verses that we're going to begin looking at this morning, verses 16 to 23, the Apostle Paul is going to flesh out this false teaching that was attacking this young church. And what Paul shows us is a three-headed monster. See, these false teachers, they weren't just trying to push one idea or, or one ideology, or one approach. Like that Greek mythical monster. Seboros. This self-made religion. Was a three-headed beast. There were three different approaches. That were trying to get a hold of the Colossians. And pull them away from devotion to Christ. And in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Paul shows us the first approach. The first head of this beast. He addresses the empty ritualism. That was trying to get a hold of the Colossians, look at the text. Look at verse sixteen. Paul says, "Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." What we're going to talk about more in a moment is that there were those in Colossae who were trying to push Jewish religious rituals upon these young Christians, but but they were divorcing those rituals. From the reality that they pointed to. They were divorcing those, those religious practices from, from the marrow of Christological truth. They, they were missing the substance. The reality that is, that is Christ. They were missing that in order to, Paul says, chase after shadows. They were chasing after shadows. You see, there were some in the church who were trying to foist upon these new Colossian believers. Trying to foist upon them empty ritualism. Empty ritualism. That's the first head of this beast that is man-made religion. Empty ritualism. But in verses 18 and 19, Paul shows us another head of this monster. Another approach attempting to drag these Colossians away from their devotion to Christ. And that second head of this morning, I want to call it fleshly sensationalism. We have empty ritualism. The second head is fleshly sensationalism. Paul warns the Colossians, look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You see, there were those in the church in Colossae who who were trying to get these new believers to go after mystical experiences, visions, worshiping angels, experiences that would fuel a a fleshly fascination with those things. They were trying to get the hooks in the Colossians in in a way that it would lead them to endlessly chase after these intoxicating experiences. You know, I just need one more of these mystical experiences. Chase after those things, and in doing that, pull them away from the purity of devotion to Christ, pull them away from seeing Christ their head as the sufficient one. There were some in the church who were trying to seduce the Colossians by the fleshly sensationalism of man-made religion. And then starting in verse 20, Paul shows us a third way, third approach. Here's the third head of this beast. There were some who were trying to take the Colossians captive to what I'm going to call a futile or ineffective legalism. And that's probably true of all legalism. It's futile and ineffective. But Paul asked the Colossians, look at it there, verse 20. If, you, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of what? No value. They are futile. They are ineffective in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It was a legalistic approach to spiritually, and it was, as all legalism is, futile, ineffective. And that's what was attacking this young church. They were under attack from a three-headed monster. A three-headed monster. The the beast of man-made religion with its heads of empty ritualism and fleshly sensationalism and feudal legalism was trying to invade this young church. On all three heads, they were trying to sink their teeth into those precious people there in Colossae and pull them away from the purity of their devotion to Christ. Pull them away from living by faith alone in Christ alone. But here's the thing. As we work through this text this morning and we start examining this this three-headed beast, what I'm praying that you understand this morning is that that monster, this monster we're looking at, it didn't die off in the first century. It didn't die off in the first century. This, this situation wasn't something that was just unique to those in Colossae. It wasn't something that, that only Christians living in the first century need to be wary of. No, this three-headed monster is still on the prowl. It's still on the prowl. First, I mean, just think about it. Look around. We see this three-headed monster alive and well in the religions of the world. We see it alive and well in the religions of the world. When a Muslim bows for his daily prayers, he is firmly in the grip of empty ritualism. He's firmly in the grip of empty ritualism. He he believes sincerely that he is offering devotion to God, but he is simply following a man-made approach that is devoid of substance. There's nothing there. It's empty prayers. And when the latest Hollywood celebrity goes on and on about the insight given them by their their guru, their spiritual advisor, their shaman. They are revealing that fleshly sensationalism has its teeth in them. They they think, oh, I'm being spiritual. But all they found is a religious way to feed the flesh. They just found a religious way to feed the flesh. And when those Mormon missionaries show up at your door, proclaiming that they have the, the way of salvation... Their actions, brothers and sisters, and this should break our hearts, but their actions are just part of a system of feudal legalism that has its hold on them. They are are trying hard to work their way to be pleasing to God, trying to follow all of the rules of their quote-unquote church. But the sad thing is by keeping all of their rules, what they're going to find one day is that that will prove Empty and useless and futile when they stand before Holy God. All of their works will not save them. You see, this three headed monster of religion is still on the prowl. It's still sinking its teeth into people. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters it's not just prowling around out there in the religions of the world it is also very much alive and well in the modern church. It is very much alive and well in the modern church. In the church, we too find people who are caught up in empty ritualism and fleshly sensationalism and feudal legalism. And that, brothers and sisters, is what I, I want us to, to really be challenged by as we work through this passage. I, I was thinking about it this way. I want us to check our ankles, so to speak. And to see if the, the jaws of any of these three-headed monsters are in us. I want us to check our ankles. And we're going to begin doing that this morning, checking our ankles, by examining the first head of this beast, that of empty ritualism. We're going to, we're going to talk about the bite of empty ritualism. Again, we, we see Paul flesh out that aspect of this false teaching there in verses 16 and 17. And he begins, look at the text there, he begins by challenging the Colossians to stand up for themselves. He says what? Look at the first phrase. Let no one do what? Yeah, let no one pass judgment on you. And he says that. Why? Because most likely that's what was going on in the church. There were people who were passing judgment. There were people who were condemning these new Colossian Christians. But before we look at why they were condemning them, why they were judging them, Paul's admonition here, let no one pass judgment on you, I think it raises an important question, especially in our culture, especially in the church. Is passing judgment always wrong? Is passing judgment always wrong? Some are quick to say a hearty amen to that. that. That is never our place to pass judgment on another person. But are they right? Well, in one sense, yes, they are. Say, Ryan, what? You see, you and I are never the judge. You and I are never the judge. Uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 14, our men's group went through it this last Friday night. Ladies, you're going to go through it this next week. But in Romans chapter 14, Paul makes that point to his readers. It appears that some there in the church in Rome, they'd gotten in this habit of judging each other. And Paul says to them, this is from Romans chapter 10, verse, I mean, Romans chapter 14, verse 10. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And then he says this, listen to this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Who's the judge? Yeah. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give account of himself to who? To our brother and sister? No, to God. So then, there is only one judge. It's not me, and it's not you. Can we say amen to that? It's not. It's God. And all of us are going to stand before Him one day, and He will render judgment. So we need to realize we are not the judge. You don't have that right or that position over another person to to judge them. However, that truth doesn't mean that we're never called to challenge one another, never called to admonish one another, never to call one another to repentance. You see, although we are not the judge, amen, we're not the judge, we have been given in the word of God the verdict of the judge, amen? We have the verdict of the judge, and we are called to proclaim that verdict. We are called to proclaim the truth. That's what Jesus taught his apostles to do, and that's what all Christians are called to do. We're not the judge, but we have his verdict, and we're called to proclaim it. Amen? Amen. We're called to call men and women everywhere to surrender, to submit to the judgment of God. But that's not what was going on in Colossae. The false teachers there were not proclaiming the judgment of God. Instead, they were trying to take the Colossians captive according to their own opinions. They they were passing judgment, not based on God's truth, but based on human wisdom and human understanding. And Paul explains how this was happening. He explains the the human standard that these false teachers were using. He explains, starting in verse 16, again, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And it's that last term, Sabbath, it clues us in on how the Colossians were being judged. You see, it appears that there were some that were there in the church in Colossae who were telling these Colossians that your Christianity isn't Jewish enough. Christianity isn't Jewish enough. And that was a, that was a pretty common issue in the early church. As more and more Gentiles, more and more non-Jewish people, came to faith in Christ, some Jewish people tried to force the Gentiles to accept the Jewish practices and the Jewish customs. Gentiles were being told, you need to be circumcised. You need to start keeping the Sabbath. You need to follow the Jewish dietary laws. And that appears to be what was happening there in Colossae. First, Paul mentions that some were judging these new believers for eating the wrong foods. Now, this doesn't mean that they were getting all in their case about not having a well-balanced diet. You know, they're eating too much junk food. No, instead, what Paul's referring to most likely is that there were those in Colossae who were trying to force these new Christians into the, the Old Testament dietary restrictions. Uh, as you read through the Old Testament, there are many of you doing, reading through the Bible this year, and you've, you've come across this in, in the Pentateuch, and you come across this, you know, in the book of Leviticus. God gives his people certain dietary laws. And he tells them there are things that are clean and things that are unclean. And then he gives them lists of, here's the clean things that I want you to eat, and here are the unclean things that you shouldn't eat. We've seen a list like that in Leviticus chapter 11. But, but God's purpose in giving his people that list wasn't just simply, oh, you know, I want you to have a good diet. His purpose, as one commentator explains, listen to this, was to mark Israel as God's distinct people and to discourage them from intermingling with the surrounding nations. It was an Old Testament, Old Covenant identity marker for God's people. But some in Colossae wanted to see these new Christians embrace that, that old identity marker. And they weren't just challenging them to change what they ate. They were also challenging them to change what they drank. Now, this is interesting. They weren't just going after them about what they ate. They were also going after them about what they drank. And this is interesting because this commentator, William Hendrickson, explains, with respect to drinking, he says, the Old Testament contains rather few prohibitions. though lack of moderation is strongly condemned in the Old Testament. In other words, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on what you drank. The issue was more, how much? <laughs> Don't get intoxicated. So, if Old Testament dietary laws don't address what you drink. So, what were these false teachers using to judge the Colossian Christians? Why were they going after them not about just what they ate, but also about what they drank? Well, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo explains that many Jews at that time, many Jews that were living in gentile environments, so they were out of Israel, they were they were out of Jerusalem, so they're living in gentile areas. He says, many Jews living in Gentile environments chose to abstain from all meat and wine in order to avoid possible ritual contamination. In other words, because the wine, because the meat was being prepared by pagans who worship pagan gods, the Jews chose to abstain from eating anything that had been handled by pagans' hands. So, wine, meat, don't eat it. And although we can't know for sure, that's most likely what was happening there in Colossae. These young Christians were being told that they could only eat and drink what was viewed as ritually clean. They could only partake of that which was viewed as undefiled, untainted by pagan or unbelieving hands. It was all about being holy. And I don't mean that in the way that God calls us to be holy. I mean these man-made, self-made religious practices and these identity markers of being holy. But, in addition, in the text here, in addition to being judged by what they were putting in their mouth, the Colossians were also being judged by what they were putting on their calendar. Look at the text. Paul talks about them being judged with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now now that phrase, that particular combination of festival a new moon, or a Sabbath it was interesting as I was studying this week. I found that that was a repeated phrase in the Old Testament, that pattern first uh, chronicles twenty three thirty one talks about burnt offerings that were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moon, and feast days, or festivals. In Ezekiel forty-five seventeen, you find a reference to burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drinks offerings made at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbath. And in Second Chronicles 2, 4, Solomon talks about building the temple in order to make burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and new moons and appointed feasts of the Lord our God. So all that to say, this is a very Jewish pattern that we're finding here. It's a very Jewish pattern, and it leads us to, to believe that, that what was being pushed upon these new Christians was the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar. They were being told, you need to keep the Jewish calendar. You need to keep the feasts, and, and that refers to the, the pilgrimage feasts, like Passover, and the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And, and those were events, as you see in the Gospels, that you needed to pick up and move, travel to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate. So these Gentiles were being told, now that you come to Christ, you need to go to these annual feasts and festivals and go to Jerusalem to celebrate these things. The Colossians were also being judged here, according to the text, for not keeping the new moon or the first of the month as sacred. Now, it was traditionally on the first of the month of the new moon that the sacrifices were offered. So that was viewed as a sacred day. So they're being judged for not viewing that as a sacred day. And they're also being condemned, look at the text, for not keeping the Sabbath. Now, anyone who has read through any of the New Testament Gospels knows, has seen what a confusing mess the Sabbath had become. It became a confusing mess. The day which God had given to his people for rest and to worship him, it had become a source of oppression, a burden in Jewish culture. But it wasn't God's fault that it became that way. As you read through the Gospels, you see this. The Jewish people had created these ridiculous lists of rules, all these regulations about the Sabbath. You can only carry so much. You can carry half a fig. You got a full fig, you're in trouble, right? You only carry half a fig. You can only carry so much. You can only carry it so far. You can, here's the work you can do. Here's how far you can travel. Here's the work that you can't do. They came up with these whole elaborate lists. And remember in the Gospels, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for encouraging this foolishness. Remember he told them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was was a gift to man, not to be a source of bondage upon man. But that's what it had become in Jewish culture, and that's what was being pushed upon the Colossians. Teachers, these false teachers, were trying to push their way into this young church and put them under the bondage of all these Jewish rituals. They were trying to put them under the bondage of religious ritualism. But here in our text, Paul calls them to break free from that bondage by realizing that those rituals are empty. They're empty. They were simply shadows of the real deal, and we as Christians have the real deal. We have the real deal. Paul says, look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? The substance belongs to Christ. And here, Paul's not only helping those first century readers, those Colossians, Paul is helping Anyone and everyone who lives this side of the cross, he's helping all of us understand the purpose of all of those rules, all of those regulation, all of those rituals in the Old Testament. You see, those things that we find in the Old Testament, like dietary laws and sacrifices and festivals in the Sabbath, they all did serve an important purpose. They had an important purpose. They weren't empty practices and empty rules given by God. God wasn't just giving his people in the Old Testament busy work, you know? Why don't you guys go do all these religious things until the Messiah comes? I'll keep you guys busy with this stuff. There was a purpose. There was a design. Every rule, every regulation, every sacrifice, every sacred day had a purpose. But that purpose was to point to something. That purpose was to point to Someone. And the Apostle Paul, he explains over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says, the law, he's talking about the whole Testament, it has become our tutor to lead us, remember what it says? To Christ. The law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, our guardian, taking us somewhere. It's leading us to Christ. You see, the purpose in the Old Testament, all those rules, regulations, sacrifice, Sabbath, all the purpose of that was to get us ready. It was to prepare the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those rules and regulations, all those sacrifices, they are teaching us, one, about the holiness of God, two, about the sinfulness of our own heart, and three, about how much we need a Savior. I mean, all of those things, they're enforcing those truths. Those truths. They're reminding us of the truth, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. I mean, think about offering a sacrifice there at the temple, and you put your hand on that animal, and you confess your sin, and that animal is butchered right in front of you. A very graphic way to say what? Yeah, God is holy, and in order to come into his presence, your sin needs to be dealt with, and sin is serious. And that's, that's the purpose of all of it, over and over and over again, showing us the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and that we need a Savior. Through all of those rituals, through all of those rules, through those sacrifices and those Sabbaths, God was painting a picture. And the picture wasn't just of his holiness and our sinfulness, but the picture was also of the Redeemer to come. He was painting a picture of the Savior to come. All of those things were signposts pointing us to the Redeemer, pointing us to the Savior. And in the fullness of time, according to God's sovereign plan, the one to which all of those things were pointing to, He came. He came. Jesus came. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, came. And He came, and as He came, He kept every law. He kept every commandment. He fulfilled all of it. And He did it, not just to show us how, He did it for us. In our place. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? Let's be honest about this. We couldn't, right? The whole Old Testament is a record of that, right? We failed time and time and time and time again. The Old Testament is a record of how humanity failed to keep the law. So Jesus kept it for us. And then he stepped into our place upon the cross and became the sacrifice. All those Old Testament sacrifices pointing somewhere. He became the sacrifice for our sin. He was the sacrifice offered how many times? Once for all. So not annually, not the first of the month, not the new moon. He was the sacrifice offered once for all. He was the sacrifice to which all those other sacrifices, they were just pictures, they were just signposts pointing to the sacrifice for our sins. To so offer the sacrifice, he died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he rose. And he rose so that the work of our salvation would be complete, and through faith, we would now enter into, watch this, we would now enter into the true Sabbath, the true rest for the people of God. How much work do we need to do to accomplish our salvation? None. Jesus has done it for us, so we enter in now to the rest that is our salvation, the rest that is ours in Jesus Christ. He is our, our true Sabbath, He he came to give us life. He came to be our life. He is our food and our drink, the bread in the cup, that which sustains us, that which makes us clean, that which satisfies our every thirst and longing, because Jesus is the substance. Everything else was pointing there. Jesus is the substance. He's the truth, to which all those other Old Testament rules and regulations, all those other things, they were just signposts pointing to Jesus. All those other things are merely a shadow. He's the substance. So why would we spend time chasing after the shadows when we have the reality? That's Paul's point. Paul tells these Colossians, now you have the substance. So you need to understand, Christ has fulfilled all of those things. What these false teachers are trying to push upon you, what they're claiming is so important, what they're judging you about, what they're condemning you about, Paul says those things are just the shadows. The substance belongs to Christ, and you have... Christ. What we need to understand is the difference between the two, all those Old Testament rules and regulations in Christ, is as different between a shadow and the body that casts that shadow. It's as different as a shadow and the body that casts that shadow. You see, it's interesting, the word that Paul uses here in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Paul's Greek term that's translated by the ESV as substance and by the NIV as reality it's actually the Greek word for body, the word soma. But why it isn't translated as body here in our text is because when that word soma is accompanied by the word skia, the word for shadow, just like we find here in verse 17, that word soma is used to speak of that which is the reality that casts the shadow. It's the body, the substance, the reality that casts the shadow. And when you think about that, when you think about the difference between a shadow, And the body that casts that shadow, you begin to grasp some of the superiority of Christ to all those things which came before him. It's as different as the shadow to the body. Christ is as superior to those rituals and those feasts and those festivals as a body is to the shadow it casts. Let me me give you a picture this morning. I want to really, really grab a hold of this. So, husbands, think with me about standing there in the hallway of your house. And you you see your wife's shadow coming around the corner. And that means what? She's coming down the hall. She's on her way. But what if when she finally does come around the corner, you say, I'm so excited to see you. And then you start trying to hug and kiss her shadow. That would be ridiculous, right? She would look at you and say, what are you doing down there on the floor trying to hug the floor? I'm standing right here. You say you're excited to see me. Why are you making out with my shadow? Right? It would be ridiculous. It would be foolish. Now, to be fair, at a point in time, her shadow was helpful, wasn't it? Her shadow was helpful it let you know, oh, here's who's coming. And here's how close she's getting. She's on her way. But when she arrives, what purpose does it serve to continue to be fixated upon her shadow? That's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. And that's what Paul's teaching these Colossians. That's what Paul's teaching these Colossians. Don't let people judge you because you're not chasing after the shadows when you have the real deal. Don't let people judge you because you're not chasing after shadows when you have the real deal. You have Christ. But here's the thing. If these Colossians continue to chase shadows, if they give in to these false teachers and start going that direction, they're not simply pursuing that which is foolish. They're also pursuing that which is dangerous. They're pursuing that which is dangerous. You see, and and there are certain groups that claim to be Christian and maybe they are some of them are Christian, um, but they want to kind of go back and put themselves back under the Old Testament law. Some groups of Messianic Jews, some Seventh-day Adventists, they want to go back and put themselves under the Old Testament law. But here's the thing. To go back and do that, to put yourself under the law, under that which has already been fulfilled in Christ, is to be moving backwards in redemptive history. It's to be moving backwards into redemptive history. It's to live like you don't understand the plan of God. Like you don't understand the significance of the coming of Christ. Like you don't understand what was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It shows you have a dangerous, and by that I mean a loose grip on the realities of the gospel. You see, none of those Old Testament rituals were the end in and of themselves. They weren't the end in and of themselves, None of them were really the means of pleasing and honoring God. None of them were in and of themselves the way of salvation. They were simply what? Signposts pointing to our need for salvation and the one who would ultimately provide that salvation. So to go back into those things, to go back to those rituals and rules, is to separate those rituals from the reality to which they point because the reality has come. The reality has come. Is to pursue those rituals as though they were an end in and of themselves. As though they were the way to be pleasing to God. As though they were the way to honor God. As though they were the way of salvation. And that's the danger of what was being pushed there in Colossae. There were those in the church who were pushing these rituals. It's about what you eat. It's about what you drink. It's about the dates on your calendar. They were pushing those rituals as a means of being pleasing to God. They were pushing tradition. As a means of winning favor with God. They were pushing legalistic habits as the secret to godliness. And in so doing, they were pushing the Colossians away from the purity of faith alone in Christ alone. They were pulling them away from trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus. They were offering them empty rituals in the place of the sufficiency of Christ. And beloved, that still happens in the church today. Still happens in the church today. It's easy, brothers and sisters. So let's be honest, it's easy for us to get all caught up in doing this or that religious practice and miss the forest for the trees. It's easy for us to get pulled away into empty ritualism and lose sight of, of the truth behind our religious practices. We end up divorcing the ritual from the reality. We end up making it an end in itself. And then we judge ourselves and we judge one another by the shadows instead of the substance. So let me ask you this question as I close this morning. Let's check our ankles this morning and see if this three-headed beast of religion, if it's head of empty ritualism, has its bite into us. Here's my question for you this morning. Why do you do the religious things that you do? Why do you do the religious things that you do? And here's what I mean by that. Why do you pray? Why do you read God's word? Why are you here this morning? Why do we gather together as a church? Why are you coming to gather together with us as a church? Why do we serve one another? Why do we engage lost people? Why is Emily going to India and her mom and dad willing to make that sacrifice to have her go? Why do the religious things, again, religion is Expression, devotion to God. Why do the religious things that you do? Brothers and sisters, the answer better be because of Christ. The answer better be because of Christ. The answer better be that those things are an expression of a relationship, a true relationship, a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we pray not simply because that's what Christians do. We pray because our Heavenly Father invites us to come. Amen? He invites us to come. And so we come as those who delight to engage with our Savior, who delight to come to the Father through the Son. We delight to come because he hears us. God the Spirit helps us in our prayers. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? He helps us in our prayers. And we know that God delights to meet us there and teach us there and grow us there in this relationship that we have with him through Christ. And here's the thing, brothers, let we read God's word for the same pursuit. Amen? It's about a relationship. Here in the word, we meet God. We come to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We come to know them. We come to know what they are like, what they are, have done. We come to know what we are like and what God has done for us because of what we are like. Here in God's word, we behold, we come to know the glories of our God and his gospel. We come to know that it's not about us. It's not about our works making us pleasing to God. Instead, it's about God doing the work to change us and transform us and welcome us in to his presence. And and as we come to know these things, and here's the trap for some of us. As we come to know these things, it's not simply about an intellectual pursuit. Okay, we're knowing these facts. We're getting our systematic theology down. It's not simply about an intellectual pursuit. It's about a relationship. Amen? Amen? It's about a relationship. It's about seeing Christ and meeting Christ and fellowshipping with Christ in his word. You say, Ryan, I'm having a struggle finding time to spend in the word each day. It's about a relationship. Don't you want to meet him there? Don't you want to fellowship with him there? And we gather together Sunday morning to pursue the same thing corporately pursue the same thing together. We gather together. It's such a blessing. And I've just been feeling it this morning as we've been together. We gather together as this family to be united in worship and in praise and in fellowship with our God. Not just me by myself with God, all of us, this family together with God. We're together around his word. We're together raising our voices in song and in praise. We're together with the spirit helping us to grow together together. In this relationship with our God And with one another And it's because of that relationship That we serve one another We love Jesus So we love those that he loves Amen, Amen. We love those that he loves And, and as our, our love for one another As our service for one another As it grows It's just an expression Of that, that thriving relationship That we have with Christ We love those who he loves So we serve those who he serves And then we go, we go to the lost because we want them to know Him too. We want them to know Him too. We want them to experience the love that we have found in Him. We want them to know the joy of forgiveness. Isn't there joy in forgiveness? Some of you, let's just be real honest this morning. You were carrying some pretty heavy things in life, a lot of guilt. A lot of burden, a lot of sinful things beating you up. What a blessing to come to Christ and experience true forgiveness. To have those sins wiped away. Don't you want that for other people? Don't you want that for your family members and coworkers and neighbors? You know, some of them are walking around with this, this, these huge burdens. Don't you want them to know that, that joy of forgiveness? That joy of reconciliation? Don't you want them to to be able to sing about grace like you sing about grace? To know the purpose, the peace, the reality, the, the substance that you found in Jesus Christ. That's why we go. You see, Christianity isn't about empty religious rituals. But here's my warning to you this morning. If we're not careful, that's where we can end up. That's where we can end up. We can end up doing these things that should bring us close to Christ, that should strengthen our relationship with Christ, that should be an expression of our relationship with Christ. We can end up doing them just to do them. Do you know what I mean? End up doing them just to do them. We can end up divorcing the ritual from the reality, spending our time chasing shadows and ignoring the substance. But beloved, that's not the Christianity that God in his word calls to. That is simply man-made, self-made, self-imposed religion. That's what it is. So check your ankles. <laughs> check your ankles to see if that, that hound of empty ritualism has its hold on you. Check your ankles by asking that question. Why do you do the religious things that you do? Why do you do the Christian practices that you do? Are you chasing shadows? Or do you have a hold of the substance? Is Jesus in his gospel? at the heart of what you do. We're gonna close our service this morning by celebrating Jesus and his gospel. We're gonna gather together around the Lord's table. And beloved, this is not simply a ritual that Christians do, amen? This is not a ritual. This is an expression of a relationship. This is an expression of our desperate need for Christ and that he is more than sufficient to meet that need. He lived the life that we failed to live and he died the death that we deserve to die. He lived for us and he died for us. So we gather around this table to feed our hearts on that truth that is finished. He has accomplished everything. As we talked about last week, it is paid in full. It's finished. Let's pray together and ask the men to come forward for this time around the Lord's table. Dear Father, I thank you for your word and for the clarity that it gives us on just the way things work. And as we, as we look around at the religions of the world, it's really easy to see this, this empty ritualism, the fleshly sensationalism, and the feudal legalism that has a hold on so many people. So we thank you that, that your word has given us a lens to look at those things and rightly understand what's going on. But we also thank you that although this must have been a really tough season for that church in Colossae, you gave us this letter describing the situation so we can know that's not just an out-there problem, but it's a problem that works its way into the church and that we too can find ourselves in the grip of empty ritualism and fleshly sensationalism and feudal legalism. So we pray as we continue to work through this text in the weeks ahead, that you would help us by your spirit to really check our ankles. See if these things have a hold on us. Father, we we want to be delighting in you the way you've called us to delight in you. We want to be enjoying this relationship with you. So, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us discernment to see if we've fallen into, especially as we've talked about this morning, just empty ritualism, just going through the motions and missing out on the delight of this relationship with you. And I pray for those this morning who might be thinking, well, I don't really feel that relationship, so I'm not going to go pursue those things. I pray that you would lead them to see the joy, the delight in the relationship and and what a blessing prayer is and time in the word and gathering together with other believers and serving one another and sharing the gospel. What a blessing it is when it's done in truth as an expression of relationship. And I pray for all of us now as we gather together around your table, around the Lord's table, pray that none of us would be going through the motions this morning. Pray that every single one who takes of the bread and takes of the cup would take it because they acknowledge they are a sinner who apart from Christ deserved judgment, deserve eternal separation from you. They would take the bread and take the cup, because as though, though they acknowledge they are sinners, they also have grabbed a hold of by faith the truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And so they take the bread to celebrate, to feed their hearts on the truth that Jesus Christ lived the life they failed to live. He is our righteousness. Because of, of his perfect obedience, clothing us, we can we can come freely before you. And so as they take that bread, I pray that their hearts would be de- delighting in the truth, that they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And as they take that cup, I pray that it would be feeding their hearts, feeding our hearts on the truth that Jesus died for us. That all the judgment, all the condemnation we deserve fell upon him instead. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Feed our hearts in that truth that the work is finished. Jesus lived for us, died for us and rose again to show us that it is completed. May this not be just something that Christians do. May this be brothers and sisters, children of God, delighting in the relationship that we have with you through Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen.